Welcome, everyone, to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Ready or not. Welcome back, one and all, to another episode of the Two Tongues Podcast. It's a solo episode today, you guys, coming at you midweek for a little bit of opinion scholarship. What we're going to do today is get into something that has been fascinating me lately, been fascinating the other tongue on the podcast, Kyle, <clears throat> for a little for a little bit longer. So I'm begrudgingly being brought into this, but uh, but that's not unusual for me. I'm very begrudgingly getting into anything. Um, that doesn't mean I'm not going to love it. It uh, doesn't mean Kyle didn't know that I was going to love it, but I do, I'll be honest with myself about that particular quality. I, I do have to be dragged kicking and screaming a lot of times into something new. Um, and, and, you know, just to cut right to the chase, this what, what, what I want to talk about today is something from Orthodox Christianity that I never really heard before that when Kyle began to get interested in Orthodox Christianity came onto my radar and it's sort of baffling as to how it never ended up on my radar up until now. This, the idea is, is called theosis. So if you guys remember, Kyle introduced me to uh, a number of Orthodox people or maybe Orthodox leaning people uh, online, including David Patrick Harry of the church of the eternal logos um, and, and some others. Um, and I, really enjoyed David Patrick Harry's discussion of theosis and also um, of the logos and what that means, this histor- the history rather, of the concept and all of that. Um, theosis is this idea in Orthodox Christianity that seems to mean something like becoming God. Okay, so you guys know where my interests lie. We talk about this all the time, especially when we talk about mystical experience and psychedelic experience, that it has this ability um, to create this unusual enlightenment that people come back from and say things like, everything is God, I am God, Um, everything is one, the universe is one, that oneness is God, that oneness is consciousness, that oneness is something, you know, something familiar and strange. And you hear this over and over and over again, you hear the same sort of messages See, then I find out that Orthodox Christianity, unique among all the different flavors of Christianity, is particularly mystical. And the early church fathers who were mystical themselves, they fall much much more closely, much more squarely in this Orthodox area than they do in Roman Catholicism or anything else. And um, listen, I grew up a Christian. Not a particularly active one, you know. We didn't go to church all that much, but I grew up. I grew up, you know, in that sort of a family. Um, 
there was Bibles in the house. Uh, we, we did go to Sunday school when we were kids. We went to church periodically. Um, and I have an interest in this idea of God beyond Christianity. And I'm fascinated with this idea of recognizing your identity with God that, that happens in mystical experience. So why in the world has this idea of theosis gone under the radar for me? It just doesn't make any sense. It's like something in my own familiar religious tradition, exactly like all of the things that stimulate me in other places. I'm fascinated by these ideas. And here's one, you know, that's at home in my very own, you know, religion, the religion I was born into. How did I not know it? It's like, is Eastern Orthodox Christianity so obscure that your rank-and-file Christian never heard this idea of theosis, at least in the United States? That's fascinating to me. Why did I have to hear about this from a, from a PhD student philosopher, David Patrick Airy, on his YouTube show, you know? So this is connected to a lot of stuff we already talk about, a lot of stuff that I'm already interested in. And really what I want to talk about today is focusing on this idea of theosis because there's a lot of explanation that goes into theological concepts that is extra-biblical. So what I mean is smart people think a lot about the scripture um, and how they tie together and what the spirit is and all that. And then they flush out what the meaning is in all kinds of different ways. And you see this in the Catholic Church. You hear about things like purgatory and limbo. Where is that in the Bible? Not there. You're not going to find it there. That's one of those things that gets read into it, these dogmatic things. And I wonder if theosis is something like this, something that gets read into the religion, added to it. Um, or if it's if it's an authentic um, and critical piece of Christianity that, for whatever reason, I'll let you speculate, has been left out of all the other Christian denominations. And if I'm supposed to understand theosis literally, because it means literally to become God, if I'm supposed to believe that, and at the same time, and in the same religion, juggle the idea of theosis with the idea of Christ as the only incarnation of God, there's something like a paradox here, and it's what I want to talk about. It's what I want to ask you about. If Jesus was God according to the Christian tradition, God on earth, the Word made flesh, all of that stuff, and we, as Christians, follow this path towards theosis, which allows us to become God, is there a difference between a spiritual uh, human being on a spiritual path and Jesus Christ, is there a difference if I can become God and Jesus was God? Is there a difference? So my mystical intuition tells me, no, there is no difference. And there's lots of traditional religious people, not just Christians, that are, you know, throwing their hands up and maybe they're yelling at me right now. Um, I, that's a blasphemous thing to say if you're a Christian. And at the same time, we say that it's blasphemous to equate ourselves with the God-man, with Jesus. It's blasphemous, you know? Jesus is the perfect being, far above me. How can I make it, you know, some... Uh, how can I equate my own self to, to Christ? 
So there's something blasphemous there that maybe holds us back from talking about this. Maybe it holds the Eastern Orthodox Church back from talking about this in other ways. I don't know. But that's what I want to, that's what I want to ask you. Is it possible that this idea of Jesus, especially in the faith when we're asked to imitate Jesus, to do as Jesus does, to be Christ-like, you know, to try to be godly and live a godly life. If we're supposed to be imitating Jesus, and we've talked about this before, there's lots of little breadcrumbs like this. As Christians, we're supposed to be imitating Jesus to, to behave and think and feel in the way that he demonstrated in the scripture. And we take the body and blood of Christ into ourselves and incorporate the communion into our own bodies. So these sorts of things uh, that you notice when you're sitting in a Christian service and you're listening to the preacher up on the pulpit, and right behind the preacher on the pulpit is a giant wooden cross with the figure of Jesus hanging on it. And the whole time you're listening to the scripture, you're staring at Jesus, meditating in a way that's maybe unconscious. <clears throat> so you've got the imitation, you've got the communion and the embodiment of Jesus, you've got the meditation on Jesus, all of this stuff present in the uh, liturgy, in the service. And I ask, what is all that doing? It's presenting you an example, an ideal that you're supposed to imitate and follow, and you're supposed to identify with. You're supposed to identify with so much that you imagine the bread and the wine are the actual body and blood of Jesus becoming your actual body and blood. I mean, how close do we have to get to being Christ symbolically? before we ask ourselves whether the story of Jesus is not telling us what the Orthodox Christians seem to be telling us, something like that. As Jesus was a man and also God, so are you, or so might you be. So what I want to do here is I want to use strictly evidence from the Bible and the church fathers um, that are accepted kind of on both sides of the Roman Catholic divide and the Orthodox side, I want to use only evidence from the Bible, and we'll ask ourselves, does the Bible tell us that God is something like the, the early Greek philosophers might have said, something like one and many, some sort of paradoxical thing like this? Is God one and many? Because the one idea, this monotheistic idea, is so important to Judeo-Christianity, and Islam for that matter. And is there something more to it? Is there something more going on? with this idea of monotheism <clears throat> that expands it to be something like the one and the many. And we have to deal with this paradox. And, and does that mean that God is more than one somehow? And, and, and might that mean that Jesus is not meant to be understood as the only God-man? Maybe the prime example of, of that. Maybe, maybe. Is there evidence from the Bible that might suggest this idea of theosis is not just an attribute of the Christ, but an attribute that's either already existing and potential within all of us, which I think is probably true, or something that can be earned? That's more closer to like maybe a Buddhist perspective. You have to earn nirvana, something like that. So let me just dig into this. I don't really know where to begin, so I'm just going to dig into this. There are some passages early on, and I want to try to be chronological as best I can, um, but the first bit we're going to get into, <clears throat> um, well, you'll see, you'll see. We'll give a little intro, and then we'll get into this chronology. 
But there are passages in the Bible early, early in the Bible. Genesis, right? A book that was an oral tradition that existed for a very long time and was written down in a very ancient period of time. I think the 10th century BC is what's speculated. It's very, very old. I tell you that because the book of Genesis was written far, far before Jesus ever existed. Before the idea of a trinity, let's say, was ever a part of of the Judeo-Christian tradition because there was no Christian tradition yet. In the Bible, we have these two words that are used. There are more words, but these two words in particular that are related, that are used to mean God. The first one is El, and the second one is Elohim. And if you're not Hebrew, maybe you don't know, but El just means God. And in the ancient, <clears throat> in the ancient Middle East, in the Canaanite religion, um, and probably the same tribes that became the Jewish people, they worshipped a God called El. And so that word... <clears throat> That word does mean God, and you could use it to you could use it when you're talking about any God of any religion, but it also means a particular God for them, which is their high God. Very similar to us using using the word God like we do as as Christians or Jews. When we say God, we mean the most high. We mean the high God. That's not a proper name, but you know what we mean when we say it. So L just means God, but you can imagine it like the way we use the word God with a capital G. We, it just means God, and you can use it in other contexts, but it also means God. It also means the big guy, Yahweh, you know? It's also singular. El is singular. God. Elohim is plural. Gods. And the strange thing about the ancient Hebrew is that both of those words mean presumably the same thing. God and gods and Genesis means it makes reference to the God. There is only one, right? Judaism is monotheistic, strictly monotheistic. That's what separates them from the rest of the religions in the Middle East of their of their era, right? And yet, El and Elohim seem to mean the same thing in the in the earliest parts of um, the Bible, and in Genesis, you'll hear these strange things where when when mankind is being created. The Bible says that mankind is being created in our image, right? So we all, we all know that. We understand that as Christians, we're supposed to have been created in the image of God. But the Bible says that man was created, and this is, again, I'm speaking here as God in Genesis. We'll create mankind in our image. And when, when Adam and Eve, uh, you know, eat the, the fruit from the tree of knowledge and they're, and they're in trouble... Um, and they're going to be kicked out of the garden, God says that Adam and Eve have to be removed because they might eat the fruit from the tree of life and become as one of us. As one of us, right? God in the plural, Elohim, God in the plural. So when mankind is made in the image of God, it's Elohim in the image of God's. What does that mean? And when when God is concerned that human beings are going to eat from the tree of life and become like gods, God says that man will become as one of us, as one of us, as one of gods with an S. What is that about? It's very difficult because El and Elohim are, are making reference to the only God that exists. So who is our and what is us relating to? Who is us? Christians will tell you us relates to 
the Trinity. It relates to the other persons of God, the Holy Spirit, Jesus. But guys, this is this predates Jesus by thousands of years. So is it prophetic in that way? Is it anticipating a trinity? Or did we read a trinity into this? It's very, very difficult to say. I just don't know. But I want you to notice it. God and gods in the, in, in the Genesis account make reference to the same only monotheistic God of the Jews. With that, what I want to do next is I'm going to remind you of the timeline, and then I want to give you some quotes from the early church fathers. And I think it's important, because a lot of times we get, we focus on um, just the scripture, and as a Christian in the United States, as an evangelical, um, you know, coming from that tradition, it's um, sola scriptura, as Kyle said the other day. It's strictly the Bible. That's the authority. I don't need anybody's opinion on the matter. I don't need a priest to interpret it for me. That was the whole Protestant Reformation. That's what it was about. <clears throat> However, the early church fathers lived, many of them, very, very close to the time of Jesus. And they lived very, very closely with the early Christians. And there was a lot of diversity among the early Christians. Gnostic groups and of all different kinds, Manichaeans and Mandians and, you know, um, all sorts of different Gnostic groups. The Essenes, you know. So there was a lot of things going on in the early tradition. And if you want to know, if you want to know, what these early Christians believed or what separated the groups, I think it is helpful to look at the early church fathers. You're getting like nearly a first-person perspective from them that you're not going to get from any other commentary, period. So there's some value in that. So I want to read a little bit of that, and then we'll return to the Bible. So I'm going to call this section the church fathers, and I want to remind you of the of the chronology. Okay, so so Jesus was supposed to have been born sometime, I don't know if it's sometime between 9 and 4 uh, BC. Um, traditionally, we say, you know, the year of our Lord and, that, you know, AD 1, but uh, historically, maybe not maybe not so. Maybe Jesus was born a few years earlier than that. So mo- generally, they think somewhere between uh, 4 BC and maybe the mid-30s AD, some, somewhere in that time frame is when Jesus lived. So you can imagine 33 AD, Jesus is is has been crucified been crucified right the gospels that were written about jesus we really don't know exactly how early they were written but most scholars agree somewhere between 60 AD and 110 so jesus dies around the mid 30s AD <clears throat> stories are being told about him word of mouth among his uh, apostles and and uh, you know the new converts and all that kind of thing nothing gets written down in terms of the story of Jesus or his uh, quotes you know things that he said until right around 60 AD at the earliest maybe as late as 100 AD so we have a bit of time here between Jesus's death and when the gospels are written so You know, I don't know what that means. I don't want to speculate on what that means, but you can imagine um, some time has gone by in between. Um, I don't know what happened in that time in the development of Christianity. I don't know what happened in that time, but the early church fathers come in basically right on the heels of the gospels being written down. So, if the later date of the gospels, 110 A.D., is, is approximately true, we've got people like Clement of Alexandria, who's an early church father. And he lived 150 AD to 215 approximately. 
So literally, on the heels of when the, when the Gospels were very first written down, you've got this early church father. He is an early church father, guys. And he says this. When you see your brother or sister, you see God. That's Clement of Alexandria. When you see your brother or sister, you see God. Now, you know Clement of Alexandria was an early Christian because he was a convert, right? He, he was a, a Greek convert. And so his, um, the religion he was born to is probably something like the classical Greek religion or some similar polytheistic faith. He became a Christian, one of the earliest. And he says, when you see your brother or sister, you see God. What does that mean? What do you think that means? I'm waiting. I mean, there's basically two approaches here. I could say that this is symbolic and that it's poetic and that it means something like there's something like a thread of God that runs through all people, maybe something like that. Or I can take it literally and say what Clement of Alexandria said. When you see your brother or sister, you see God. And that means literally God is other people. Literally. God is literally other people. When you encounter other people, your brothers and sisters, you're encountering God. It's a strange thing for a Christian to say. It would be today. But in the early days, it wasn't. That brings me to my next. His name is St. Anthony of Egypt. He lived between 251 and 356 AD, so he comes after Clement of Alexandria. He says this, he who knows himself knows God. What do you think of that? He who knows himself knows God. Reminds me of that uh, phrase that was carved above the Temple of Apollo at Delphi that says, Know thyself. So one of the preconditions of, go of, of going into the Temple of Delphi and maybe having uh, this experience with the priestess is that you should know yourself, know what it is that you are. And that reminds me of this. He who knows himself knows God. So there's a poetic interpretation of this, um, very similar to what we read from Clement of Alexandria. However, there's also a literal interpretation of he who knows himself knows God, and it basically says what exactly you think it says. You are God. Now, we could say that about Jesus as a Christian, no problem. Say it about you or me, eh, we're, now, we're on, now we're on blasphemous territory pretty damn quick. But St. Anthony of Egypt says, he who knows himself knows God. Clement of Alexandria says, God is other people. St. Anthony of Egypt says, you are God. So God is other people and God is you, according to the early church fathers. Not Jesus, you, me. I'm not excluding Jesus from that, I'm just saying he, that's what he's pointing to. Not pointing to Jesus in this case. So if we can fast forward just a little bit longer, um, we get to an um, early church father named Athanasius, and he lived 296 to 373 AD, a little bit later, pretty close to the time of St. Anthony of Egypt. Um, he was also from Egypt. What did he say? He said, God became human so that we might become God. God became human so that we might become God. So there's a, there's a poetic interpretation to that, symbolic interpretation to that, 
And there's a literal interpretation. The literal interpretation says God and man are one. God became human so that we might become God. And this is something like we talk about when we talk about the coincidence of opposites. It's like you can't have one without the other. So what I mean here is just with, like with any set of opposites, you can't have one without the other. If God becomes human, then human, humanity must be also be divine, must also become God, right? Because you can't have one without the other. The moment a God or God becomes a human being, what's happened? A human being has also become God. They're tied together. You can't have one without the other. So God became human so that we might become God. Let me just recap for a second. Clement of Alexandria says, God is other people. St. Anthony of Egypt says, you are God. Athanasius says, God and man are one. So now I want to come outside of the realm of the early church fathers. I'm going to jump into the Middle Ages just for a minute because there's some interesting stuff that goes on when Christians have have enough time to become very mystical. And it seems to tie directly back to what you're hearing from these early church fathers. So I want to bring up a Christian mystic named Meister Eckhart. Very famous Christian mystic. If you're into Christian mysticism, I'm just learning about it now. Eckhart comes up a lot. And I like Eckhart for lots of reasons. He says things that sound a lot like the things I say. So, so you know, I like that, I guess. Uh, it's, it's uh, you know, maybe that's an ego thing or something. But also, uh, Meister Eckhart was from the same area of Germany where my mother's family comes from. And I think that's kind of cool. So I got an affinity for Meister Eckhart. He said this. Um, He lived, by the way, 1260 to 1328 AD. So we're skipping, you know, skipping a lot of time. But he says this. If my life is God's being, then God's existence must be my existence. And God's isness is my isness, neither less or more. That's from Sermon 6, if you want to look that up, Meister Eckhart. So the hair stands up on my arms. Um, there's some of this is going to sound kind of Eastern, and I, I, I think that's appropriate. If, you're, if it's to you, if it sounds a little bit like Taoism or a little bit like Hinduism, I think you're on to something. When he says, if my life is God's being, then God's existence must be my existence. What does that mean? So I, I'm going to tell you in a bit what I think the first part means. My life is God's being. I want to talk about that because I think that's important. I think there's something that connects humanity and God symbolically um, that we see, well, we see kind of everywhere. I think the the early Hindus have a great uh, example of this where they talk about, and we'll, we'll see this in a minute, where he, they talk about Atman, which is like the human soul, and Brahman, which is the soul of God, basically, just to put it simply. And there's no difference between Atman and Brahman, apart from the Atmans in me and the Brahmins in God. When I die, my soul goes back and joins with the same, the source of where it came from, which is the soul of God. So you've got this story here in Hinduism that the soul of God, the thing that that animates God, the life of God, the life force of God, whatever it is, the essence of God, whatever you want to call it, that's also the essence of a human being. It's shared with us. And it's the same reason that God exists, right? That we share in common with it that makes us exist. The same thing that makes God alive makes us alive. The same thing that makes God conscious makes us conscious. Something like that is going on here in Meister Eckhart. He's saying, if, if my life is God's being, and Hindu way of saying that would be, this Atman is Brahman, 
right? If that's the case, then God's existence is my existence. He says God's isness. Like, what, what does that mean? That's a, that's a funny and Eastern sort of thing, sounding thing as well. God's isness, his amness, whatever it is that he is, his being, it's my being, right? God's existence is my existence. God's being is my being. So my, Meister Eckhart is saying God equals man, full stop. Man equals God, you know, very much like what we heard from Athanasius and St. Anthony of Egypt and Clement of Alexandria. And I'll fast forward a bit more to the 1500s. Um, there was a there was a, a saint, her name is Teresa of Avila, I believe in Spain, <clears throat> and she was mystical. But she lived her whole life dedicated to studying uh, scripture and and um, and and following the path, uh, the spiritual path, and she's remembered for it. And she said something awesome, something gnarly. Uh, let me tell you. Let me let me tell you about it. She said, "Christ has no body but yours, no hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes with which He looks." Saint Teresa of Avila, man. Now remember, as a, as a, as a, as an early Christian, as a Catholic, I, I assume a Catholic, Christ and God are seen as one thing. So you want to understand when she says Christ has no body, but yours; no hands, no feet on earth, but yours. You could easily just say God has no body but yours; no hands, no feet on earth, but yours. Yours are the eyes with which God looks, and. And the hair stands up on my arms because I said exactly this from my own mystical experience. Exactly this. You'll remember, I've said it many, many times. We are the experience God is having. Another quote I, another quote I pulled from my own mystical experience is, An, another set of eyes for that which sees. That was something I said in my own kind of mystical experience, that every set of eyes every sensing organ that opens up to the to the world is 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 oftentimes we and i said this too we feel ourselves to be inside of our heads looking out through our own eyeballs you know we're something like a soul driving around this meat vehicle and looking out through our eyeballs that which sees who is the seer behind my eyes so according to my own mystic intuition it's the same seer looking out of every set of eyes that exists or ever has existed. Every organ of sensation, you know, every bat echolocating, every atom interacting with other atoms, every instance of experience that you can imagine is God experiencing itself. And this is what St. Teresa of Avila tells us. God has no body but yours, no hands, no feet on earth but yours. Amazing. You are God acting out its own existence. So we're something like the instrument of God and also God itself. It's very mystical. These paradoxes abound, by the way, when we're talking about mysticism, not just Christian mysticism, all mysticism. But I think there's something critical in the paradox. All right, so enough with the church fathers. I'm going to call this next section the Bible. What I want to do here is read some quotes from the Bible and talk about them. Um, what do they say about this idea that we've heard from all the early church fathers that we talked about a little bit from Genesis already? What does the Bible have to say about the idea of becoming God, 
the idea of theosis. I want to start with the Psalms because this goes back to the Jewish tradition, um, pre-Christian, right? King David was supposed to have written the, the Psalms, although probably not true, um, accredited to King David. They were written down, most historians believe, between the 9th and 5th century BC. They're very, very ancient, the Psalms. Again, pre-Christian, so I want to put that put that out there. Uh, Psalm 82, verse 6 and 7. This is what I re- want to read to you. I personally never heard this until my buddy David uh, David Daniel toured and pointed it out. But listen to this. This is God speaking. I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. But ye shall die like men. So God speaking to his people said, I said, God said, that's some, that's some serious authority. You're not going to get any higher than God said. And what does God say to his people? You are gods. Motherfucker. You are gods. Gods. Again, we see that plural um, version, just like, we, just like we saw in Genesis. I say, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High, but ye shall die like men. What does that mean? We're cursed to die. We're not, we're not immortal, but we are gods. So human beings are gods. And I think we see this plural version of God's used in this case because God is speaking to his people when he says, you are gods. There's not just one person he's talking to, right? Otherwise, he might just say, you are God. There's a whole bunch of his people. And he says, you are gods, plural, because humanity is many, not because God is many. Remember, this is Jewish. God is one. It's very important. It's very important for Judaism. You know, monotheism is maybe the most important aspect of it. God is not many in this case. So he says, ye are gods. Because there's many of us. So now we can fast forward to the New Testament. I want to I wanna start with John. Now John was probably written between 70 and 110 AD and somewhere in this range. Remember, this is at least 30 years uh, or so after Jesus died, 30, 40 years. And uh, chapter 10, verse 34, goes like this. And By the way, uh, the, this is um, uh, Jesus having a, a conversation with the Pharisees. It goes like this. The Jews answered him, saying, We stone thee for blasphemy, because thou, being a man, makest thyself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, Ye are gods. Jesus. All right, so, so we know what's happening here. Jesus is having a conversation with the Pharisees. The Pharisees are trying to bury him. They're trying to have him killed. And they say to him, we're, we're not stoning you uh, for any, uh, any reason other than that you are saying you're God, even though you're just a man. And Jesus said, isn't it written in your law? I said ye are gods, which is a reference to Psalms that we just read. But he also, again, includes the authority. I said, who's I? God. So he says, look, didn't God say in your law, you are gods? So what's wrong with me saying I am a God or I am, I am God? And I think that's interesting. Jesus himself defends his own claim of Godhood by acknowledging that the Pharisees also are gods, which, which the, the scripture already tells them, which they should already know. 
Now, this is coming from the mouth of Jesus, which I think holds some weight, obviously, for Christians. It's one thing when we're talking about the Psalms or, or Genesis. It's quite another when we're using the words of Jesus from the Gospel of John. What do you as a Christian make of that? That Jesus said, you are God's. Jesus said. And in the Psalms, God said it. And that brings me to the Gospel of Luke, which was probably written a little bit later, um, but, I'm not, but I'm not entirely sure. The, uh, the time frames are, are, are a little bit slippery. But in the 17th chapter of Luke, uh, verses 20 and 21, it go like this. And when he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Neither shall they say, Lo here or lo there. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. Ooh, so Jesus is, again, talking to the Pharisees. And they're trying to pin him down. They're trying to get justification for killing him, just like we saw earlier. And they said, Where is the kingdom of God and when is it coming? And Jesus says, Behold, the kingdom of God is within you. What does that mean? What is the kingdom of God? I think we could talk about that for a long time. I think the kingdom of God is something like the place where God exists. That's his kingdom, is it not? The place where God exists. And Luke says, or Jesus says rather, according to Luke, the place where God exists is within you. I mean, amazing. His kingdom is within every human being. What does that mean? So there's something that deeper here that goes back to Judaism. And the idea of the tabernacle or the idea of the temple is a place where God can reside. And you see, you want that as an ancient person. If you're going to do your worshiping, if you're going to do your sacrifices, you want to make sure God is there to accept your sacrifices. So you create a place, you create an altar, you anoint it with oil, you go through this thing to lure God to the temple. And that's a place where God can rest, where God can be at rest and his presence can be there. And it's considered to be the greatest blessing, the most sacred thing, the holy of holies, all that sort of thing. But we hear from the biblical tradition that the body is the temple of God. What does that mean? means exactly what this means. The kingdom of God is within you. The spirit of God comes to rest in the temple. The temple. Your body is the temple of God. So the place where God exists, the kingdom of God, the place where the spirit of God comes to rest, to exist, is within you and me. What does that mean? You starting to see the picture that I'm, that I'm painting for you? What does it mean that God rests within us, that our bodies are something like the holy of holies? How close does that make me with God? Close enough to, to say there's no difference between me and Christ? I know I'm tiptoeing on that blas blasphemous soil here, but I'm asking an honest question. And I'm going to get off the beaten path for a second because I want to talk about the Gospel of Thomas. It goes along with this quote we just heard from Luke, by the way. There's a couple of really good ones. But you might say, as you're frantically flip flipping through your Bible, you're flipping through your Catholic study Bible, you're flipping through your Orthodox Bible, you're flipping through your, your, uh, your uh, King James Bible, I cannot find the Gospel of Thomas anywhere. What is he talking about? 
We've talked about it before. If you if you don't remember, the Gospel of Thomas is a Gnostic gospel. It's an early Christian gospel that was lost to time, and it's very controversial, and it's very interesting for a couple of reasons. Because some scholars believe the Gospel of Thomas is the oldest gospel predating Mark and Luke and Matthew and John. The earliest, potentially. Some scholars even believe Thomas was what they call the Q source, which is the original source for the canonical Gospels. They expected that when they found the Q source, is what they call it, Q, that it would be a list of the sayings of Jesus. You wouldn't see the narrative components, no nativity, no birth story, no crucifixion and resurrection, just sayings of Jesus. And the reason they think that is because there's so many stories and direct quotes that you see in multiple Gospels as though they were copied from one another. So there must have been an earlier source with these quotes. There are scholars that believe the Gospel of Thomas is that. The Gospel of Thomas was found, um, I want to say it was found at the Nag Hammadi Library, but it was definitely found uh, in Coptic Egyptian, which, by the way, happens to be the oldest Christian church uh, that still exists, the Coptic Church. One of the very first, by the way, historically. And some people think it was written as early as 60 A.D., which would make it the earliest gospel, which would make it the closest to the time of Jesus, which would make it hold a lot of authority. When they found it, when they rediscovered it, it happened to be exactly what Q was supposed to be, a list of the sayings of Jesus. No narrative at all. So make that make of that what you will. I'll tell you that there are other scholars that believe Thomas is the latest written. Maybe, maybe it was written a hundred plus years after the other gospels. So there's there's no consensus here. I believe, personally, the Gospel of Thomas is the earliest gospel. So let me read you a couple quotes from Thomas. In the third chapter of Thomas, uh, this quote. The kingdom of God is inside of you, and it is outside of you. Those who become acquainted with themselves will find it. It is you who are the sons of the living Father. So remember, Luke says the kingdom of God is within you. That's a very interesting idea. I like this I like this idea of the temple, the body being the temple, and the kingdom of God being the place where, where the Spirit of God comes to rest. And we carry that around with us. And it's, it's connected to the, art, the animating force of our life and spirit and consciousness. I love that. I think that's mystical as shit. I think it's, I think it's terrific. I think it's missing from modern Christianity in, in the West, and it, it's desperately needed. But here Thomas says something a little different. Similar, the kingdom of God is inside of you. Exactly, exactly what we see in the Gospel of Luke. But he adds, and it is outside of you. And then he says something a lot like the early church father said. He says, those who become acquainted with themselves will find it. Remember, that's just like the know, know thyself. Right? When you come to know yourself, you know God. That's what the early church father said. And that's what Jesus said. Those who become acquainted with themselves will find it, the kingdom of God. And then he says, it is you who are the sons of the living Father, which is exactly what we saw, um, saw from the Psalms. So Thomas is telling us that the place where God exists is within every human being, just like what we saw in Luke. But he says something else. He says, and it's the world we find ourselves in. The kingdom of God is within and it's without. So you can't find yourself 
You can't find yourself anywhere other than the kingdom of God. God is within and without. It's a little different from Luke, right? It extends the spirit of God to not just be the thing in you that causes you to be alive and, and, and to exist, but, but what causes everything to exist. Everything. And so you, you start seeing a little bit of a pantheism or a panentheism happening here. That the Gospel of Thomas was, was saying something very interesting, something that would be criticized by the Catholic Church later on. The same kind of thing that got Spinoza excommunicated from, from Judaism. And then later on in the Gospel of Thomas, in chapter 77, we have this, uh, this is again the, the words of God, but listen to this. It is I who am the all. From me did the all come forth, and unto me did the all extend. Split a piece of wood, and I am there. Lift up a stone, and you will find me there. Whoo, buddy! Hair standing up on my arms, pilo erection, you guys. That's what they call that. Fuck, that's strong. Um, so it's powerful stuff, powerful stuff. So Thomas is going further. He's saying, split a piece of wood and I am there. Lift up a stone and you will find me. This is connected to the kingdom of God being outside of you as well. So God is everything and everywhere. It is responsible for all created things. And it is all created things. So this, this angle from the Gospel of Thomas is something like God is creator and creation. Both. And I just cannot agree with that enough from my own personal intuition. All right, so now we can jump out of the Gnostic tradition. We can get back into uh, the canonical um, scripture and the book of Acts. Okay, so this is the last quote in this section I want to read to you um, Acts of the Apostles. So this is um, the, the kind of the latest uh, chronologically, but Acts were probably written between 80 and 90 AD. Um, so, um, you know, maybe even uh, earlier than when some of the Gospels would have been penned. Um, but anyway, the quote goes like this. They should seek the Lord, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Whew, buddy. All right, so when we're talking about the kingdom of God being within, this sort of plays into that to me. It, so this is a... Um, this is what we're asking believers to do, what the, what the apostles are asking believers to do. They should seek the Lord though he be not far from every one of us. Okay, so that's something like what Luke said. It's something like what Thomas said. The kingdom of God is within. So you should seek the Lord, you need, but you need to know yourself, don't you? Because God is within. But then he says something beautiful, absolutely beautiful. For in God we live and move and have our being. So it's one thing for the kingdom of God to be within and to, th and to make a connection between the, the force of our life, the animating force of life in us, our soul, our spirit, and God. It's quite another to say, in God we live and move and have our being. Because that, that says something else. It says God is the force that animates us, right? It's our soul. But it's also the place where we live. It's the cosmos. It's the place where we live and move and act. And the source of our reality and experience, right? Because it's also our being. 
So God is the soul, the cosmos, and being. Man, as a Christian, have you ever been in, and again, this is from the Acts for crying out loud, have you ever been confronted with this idea that God is that in which we live and move and have our being? And again, I'll ask you, if that is the case, if God is the thing through which we live and the thing through which we move and act in the world and the thing that makes us us, our being, what is left that is me? What is distinctly me in this situation? Because it seems to me that I am nothing in this model. God is everything. God is me the thing that the thing that makes me alive, the place that I exist, where I find myself, the the ability for me to act in the world, all of that is God. God is that in which we live and move and have our being. So where am I here? Am I God? That's what the early church fathers were trying to tell us. Is that what the apostles were trying to tell us in Acts? And Thomas and Luke. So that brings me to the next section, which I'm going to call Adam, Jesus, and all the rest of us. And what I want to do here is I want to make a chronological argument. I guess it's an argument. It's kind of like an interpretive framework, but it's going to, it's not, it's going to make sense as we go through it. What I'm going to do here is I want to read to you some verses of, through the Bible that are chronologically pulled directly from, uh, from the Bible, starting with Genesis. And I want to show you how the Bible, there is a way of interpreting the Bible that says everything I alluded to earlier, that says we are God, that was always the truth and always the intention from the very beginning, and that the thing that Jesus is is no different than the thing that each and every one of us is. And that being able to see that is not blasphemy, but our birthright. Strong words. So let's start with Genesis. A lot of, uh, well, there's a lot of divergence in how old people believe the book of Genesis is. Most people would agree that it was an oral tradition for a long time. It might have, it might date back to the 10th century B.C., it might be much much earlier than that, uh, or, or um, much more recent than that. There's really no consensus here, but let me just start from the beginning. Genesis one one, uh, and I'll read I'll read one one and one two. It goes like this. You guys know it, but here it goes. In the beginning, now I'm going to skip a little bit here, but I'm just <laughs> it's going to be annotated here. But in the beginning, the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. So I'm just taking a little excerpt there from chap from verse one and two. Um, you guys know there's a whole bit about God created the heavens and the earth. I just left that out. In the beginning, the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the water. So I want you to just focus on this bit here. In the beginning, and the Spirit of God moving on the face of the waters. So what this tells us is that God is imminent within its creation. It's also transcendent because it, it did the creating. But the moment it does the creating, it's actually there with its creation. As part of it, it's not floating above it. It's not seen as transcendent. It's seen as imminent in the world. So what I mean is God creates the cosmos, and immediately the Spirit of God is on the surface of the waters. 
So God is there in the creation. So I want you to see that. That's what, that's what the Bible wants us to know from the very beginning, is once the cosmos was brought into existence, once the material world was formed, God was immediately in it, not standing outside of it in another dimension, looking down with his magic wand, look what I've just created, but in it. It puts a whole kind of interesting spin on space and time. What does in it mean? The cosmos exists within God. What does that mean? All right, I'm going to keep going with Genesis, uh, still chapter 1, but verses 26 and 7. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. Male and female created he them. Okay, so some interesting stuff here. Some of it I pointed out to you already. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. God is not one in here, but we're talking about God's. And I think what I want to point out here is that this is very early. There isn't any human beings created. So who is, who, what is it that makes God plural here? I think this is intentional because they could use the word El, they could use the word Elohim. So I think it's intentional that our image and our likeness is, is emphasizing this plurality because God is supposed to be seen both as one, right? Monotheistic, one God, and as many and there's a paradox there. And I think, I think it has to do with, with something about forms, like thinking about God as potentiality. God can be anything, can create anything, can become anything. So there's infinite forms in which God can manifest. God is the potential, the eternal potential that could be anything. The stem cell of being might be a way of thinking about it. And I think that's what the hour means, something like that. Now, this, the verse says, male and female created he them, which gives us potentially an explanation for our, for using the word our, because the image of God is both male and female. It's more than one thing. And I think that's true. I think you get this multiplicity within the many. You get this paradox coming up here, one in the many, uh, but really referring both to God. You also have this masculine and feminine. You have this, this um, division, this, this opposition that comes up here, male and female. So God is the thing that, that unifies opposites. That's the Ouroboros. That's what Jordan Peterson calls the Ouroboros, and Carl Jung calls the syzygy. So male and female, you know, being the image of God, is a representation of whatever God is being both one and many. And the Christians pick up on this. Obviously, with the Trinity, we pick up on this. But it might also mean that men and women, real men and women, are our God. Moving on, uh, chapter 2, verse 7 says this, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Okay, so... I love this idea. I mean, you see God forming the, the form of a man out of clay and breathing into it, and the breath makes it alive. It's just a beautiful, magical little little image. You might wonder where that comes from, and there's really a cut-and-dry reason for this, and this is nothing you don't already know, but I'll point it out. The Greek word um, pneuma, you know, we see that word with like noumena, numinous, um, and the Hebrew word rauch, and I don't know if that's pronounced right or not, R-U-A-C-H, rauch, rauch, I don't know. 
Both of these words, similar with the Greek and the Hebrew, they have multiple meanings. They have like an association of meanings. Both of them mean spirit or soul. But both of them also mean breath or wind. So the reason I point that out is because the breath of life is breathed in to the form of Adam by God. The breath of life is, is understood as the spirit of God. And then I want to remind you what we saw in the beginning from Genesis. In the beginning, the spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. So God was immediately eminent in his creation. And when he creates mankind, that spirit of God, the breath of life, this is identical concepts. God breathes the breath of life, his own spirit. Remember, breath and spirit are the same word. Into Adam that causes him to be alive. So the animating force within God is the animating force within Adam, within mankind. There isn't a difference. It came from God's breath, from God's own soul, right into the form of mankind. And everybody knows why we connect breath and soul goes without saying that when we see life stop, we see breath stop. So we know that breath and soul are connected. When a baby is born and it begins to cry and breathe, it is alive. And when a man dies and his breath stops, his life stops. His soul goes with its breath. So breath and spirit have always been connected. And it was true in the Greek and it was true in the Hebrew. So again, the same Spirit of God that was there when, immediately upon creation that hovered over the face of the waters, this is the Spirit that's breathed into Adam. Again, eminent in its creation. God is eminent in man and eminent in the world. All right, that brings me to the third chapter. Uh, verse 5, it goes like this. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as God's knowing good and evil. So here's, we, we've we got fast forward to the story of Adam and Eve eating the fruit that they're not supposed to eat. And this is where, we're, where we are. We're being warned here. Don't eat the fruit. Because when you do, you'll be as, as gods, knowing good and evil. So I want to point out here that in this passage, one sentence long, you have both the word God and gods. So for God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, with the S. So El and Elohim, you see that. You will be as God is. Once you know good and evil, you will be as God is. So again I ask, is being as God is different from being God? Traditionalists will say yes, but I fail to see the distinction, at least not clearly. Ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. You shall be as God is. A little bit further on in this chapter, we get the quote, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become one of us, as one of us, to know good and evil. Okay, again, we see this us business, this plural plural use of the word. Man has become as one of us to know good and evil. 
So we did become as God is. Now I want to fast forward to the Gospel of John for a second, which is a big leap, but let me do that. In the first chapter of uh, John, in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Hair standing up on my arms again for crying out loud. So John specifically here makes this makes this comment when he says in the beginning was the word which is this word logos in the beginning was the logos and the logos was with god and the logos was god and then he says the same was in the beginning with god which is a reference directly back to genesis remember in the beginning the spirit of god hovered over the deep see it's that same spirit that john is saying here was there in the beginning was the logos was with God and was God. So you've got this relational aspect to God now. You have God itself, and then you have this idea of being with God, God and with God. And I can't help but but to remember this this phrase, you will be as God is. So so when human beings are created, you could and, and remember, God is imminent in creation. So God is with human beings, and God is human beings, is a perfectly reasonable um, interpretation of that. Connection. The Logos was God and was with God. So that's the thing that comes to incarnate the world. When God makes the cosmos, he's imminent in it. He comes into the world and is hovering over the surface of the waters. When he creates mankind, he breathes himself into us. So he's imminent even within us. That's where the kingdom of God is. That's the thing that makes me alive. And John says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. So we're supposed to understand here that the animating force, the solar spirit in men, comes directly from God. And it's the same force that animates God itself. And it's the same force that that the Orthodox and, and, and Catholic Church believes was embodied as a man in Jesus. Jesus was the Logos made flesh. The Word made flesh is what they say. And then later on in John, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So Jesus is this animating spirit that was there in the beginning. So it's, it's the same thing as God. But I want to point something out here with these last two bits where it says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And then Jesus, of course, says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So the life of men is Jesus. And Jesus is the same thing as that, that John's calling the Logos, this, the Spirit of God that was there in the beginning. Jesus is the Spirit of God. And that is life. The same life that makes you alive. The same life in you. So when Jesus says, I am the life, and you are alive, remember, you get this image of yourself as the temple of God, where the Spirit of God comes to rest. And you can call that Jesus or Logos or whatever you want, but that's the thing that makes you alive and conscious and, and, and able to have experiences. And it's the very same thing that was there in the beginning, God itself. So God is the life, and you are alive that means God is within you and a part of you in a way that's so close that I 
I struggle to understand what the distinction is. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. It doesn't say his life was the light of Jesus Christ only. His life was the light of men, all of us. So this is my biblical narrative. I know we're cherry-picking, and I completely acknowledge that. But this is the narrative that I think shows us from the Scripture that God is man and man is God. That Jesus, that Jesus the Christ is an example, something much more like the Buddhists understand Buddha to be, an example of something to follow so that you can become what Buddha was, you can become what Jesus was. I say, I say you already are, but you have to come to realize that. And this is this enlightenment. This is the, it, the Buddhists use the same word, by the way. This is this enlightenment that you have to reach, this understanding. And it boils down to exactly what the Temple of Apollo told you, to know thyself. And if you know yourself, if you know the Spirit of God that was there in the beginning, imminent in the world, was breathed into you and exists within you, and you are the temple of God carrying around God with you all the time, that your identity is not distinct from God's. This is what the mystic experience tells you. And I think that the scriptures tell you the same thing. And I know what you're going to say. You're going to say, no, Jesus was special. That's what the religion's entirely about. Not only are you missing something, you're missing the biggest thing you could possibly be missing. There is a distinction between God and man. There is a distinction between Christ and you. You are not God. Jesus was God. So I think the scriptures, like we've just read, do a good job of contesting that. And we can argue on both sides, but I think there's a solid argument to be made on the other side of this, strictly from the scripture. And from the early church fathers who agree, even the ones who lived most closely to the time Jesus lived, who agree. So there's one other hurdle that we need to talk about. If, if traditional Christians will tell you that I'm stuck on this idea, I can't budge on this idea, that Jesus is unique, that Jesus is special, and that that is the entire point of Christianity. I can't go with you on this, Chris, Sorry then I think it's important to at least talk about what distinguishes Jesus from any, anyone, from all of the rest of us. What distinguishes Jesus? So if we go back to the scripture, I think there's basically three things. Boils down to basically three things. Jesus had an immaculate conception. Did you? Did I? Listen, many of you, maybe, maybe you don't know your fathers. I know we have a problem with that in this society, but I'm guessing you have one. I'm guessing, you know, 23andMe and Ancestry.com might be able to track that motherfucker down. You've got a, you've got a father. Jesus did not. Right? His father was God. Right? So that makes a distinction between you and Jesus. Right? Yes and no. Yes and no. I mean, I want to point out that the Catholics also give an immaculate conception. They attribute that to Mary as well. So again, it's one of these extra-biblical things that we could argue about, and I probably don't agree with, but it's there in the, in the tradition that Mary was also an immaculate conception. So if that's true, it doesn't distinguish Jesus at all, because Mary was an immaculately conceived, and so was Jesus. But that's neither here nor there. I think we can argue about that. What's less controversial 
And what we probably can't argue about at all is the words of Jesus himself, who when, when telling us how we should pray, how we should communicate with God, said, Our Father who art in heaven, didn't he? Our Father. Now, if what separates me from Jesus is that Jesus' Father was God, and then Jesus steps up and says to me, Our Father who art in heaven, what does that mean? That means we share the same Father. So I can't say that what separates Jesus from me is because God is his Father and not mine. Because even Jesus says, Oh no, God is all of our fathers. So it doesn't distinguish Jesus that he doesn't have a father or that his father is God. At least that argument can be made. What about miracles? What about miracles? Can you do them? I can't do them. So does that, I mean, I mean all sorts of miracles, right? Water into wine, walking on water, healing the sick, resurrection of Lazarus, you know, his own resurrection, right? All of this stuff. Can you do any of that? So I'd like to say I'd like to say that while human beings can't perform magic, we kind of can, not in the way that Jesus did, but can we bring things back to life? Bet your ass we can. Did it take us a long time to figure out that technology? Yes. Uh, but we did. I just saw a story the other day that said we we pulled some um, what is it, some sort of virus or bacteria from the permafrost and we resurrected it, you know? How about the people that are taking the DNA from the woolly mammoths in Siberia and slowly piecing together the genome so they can put a woolly mammoth fetus into an elephant and bring it back to life? How about that? It's pretty miraculous. How about quantum, quantum computing and artificial intelligence? How about, how, how about all the advances in medical technology where a surgeon can come in and save your life in, in ways that in all of human history would have resulted in your death? Pretty, pretty goddamn miraculous, right? Not miracles in the same way, right? But, but miracles nonetheless. And, you know, I don't want to hinge this argument there because people will argue that that's not the definition of a miracle and you're stretching. So how about we go back to the Bible here? If the ability to perform miracles is what distinguishes Jesus from you and me, he could do these miraculous things. That proves he's God, and you're not. Well, well, what about Mark, the Gospel of Mark in the 16th chapter that says, And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. Or in the book of Acts, in the fifth chapter, that says, And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people. What am I telling you? I'm telling you that Mark says, If you believe in Jesus, you can do miracles. You. Not the apostles. You. In Jesus' name, you will cast out devils. You will lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. And of course, Acts, which says the same thing about the apostles. The apostles did signs and wonders wrought among the people. So Jesus did miracles. So did the apostles. And then the apostles said that we can do miracles. So is that a distinction between Jesus? Only Jesus can do miracles? So now the distinction falls, right? Now not only the apostles can do miracles, regular human beings like you and I, but we're told we can too under the right circumstances. So do miracles 
distinguish Jesus from you or me? See, I'm not so sure anymore. While we're talking about the Immaculate Conception, we might also talk about the Immaculate Death, right? Because there was a resurrection involved. What happened to Jesus? He rose from the dead, and he ascended bodily to heaven. That's what the Catholic Church will tell you. That's what the Orthodox Church will tell you. He was taken bodily to heaven. So Luke chapter 25 tells us, And it came to pass, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. This is after the resurrection. Jesus comes back, talks to his disciples. You know, they see zombie Jesus, as people like to, like to laugh about. Um, you know, he's, he's been resurrected and, and seen and then pulled up to, to heaven, taken bodily to heaven. So he, didn't, he wasn't born like you and I, but he didn't die like you and I. And these things mark him out as special. Okay, maybe so. If we didn't read Kings, if we didn't read Genesis, then then maybe, maybe we could maybe we could say so. What do I mean? In the fifth chapter of Genesis, there's another holy man, his name is Enoch. And the scripture says, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. How about Second Kings that talk about Elijah in the second chapter? And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. So what am I saying? I'm saying if, if being taken bodily to heaven, if the bodily ascension to heaven is what distinguishes Jesus from you and me, what happens if we have to recognize that both Enoch and Elijah were taken to heaven? So Jesus was carried up into heaven. Enoch was not, right? He was not, for God took him. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. So it wasn't just Jesus that had an immaculate death. It was regular people, holy ones for sure, but regular people like you and me, Elijah and Enoch, these were not Jesus. These were not the Son of God, as, as the scriptures tell you. These were ordinary people, just like the apostles were ordinary people, just like you and I are ordinary people. So if, if, I, can't, if I can't say that an immaculate conception, performing of miracles, or, or the resurrection, if I can't say any of those things uniquely distinguish Jesus from regular people, according to the Bible itself, then I, again I ask, what is the distinction between Jesus being God on earth and you and I being God on earth? That brings me to my conclusion. I'll try to keep this short and sweet. The early church fathers told us that when we know ourselves, we know God. And when we see our brothers and sisters, we see God. They support these views from the very same holy book, which recognizes Jesus as the only incarnation, as the only begotten Son of God. The paradoxes compound when in the very same book we're told that we are all gods and sons of the Most High. And that we were created in God's image, and that in God we have our being. How do we reconcile these? Is it even possible? I know what many of you will point to. You'll say there is a distinction between God's essence and its energies, between God and the Spirit of God. There is a difference between being God and being a God between God and God's Son, 
a difference between creator and creation, between you and Christ. You will say to have your being in God is to exist within it or to participate in it, not to identify with it. You would tell me I reach too far. I would respond by saying that the very same evidence you use to emphasize these distinctions, I could use to undermine them. The text is simply not explicit enough to say definitively. This puts us in an interesting place, one where interpretation becomes a matter of faith. So which is it? Is Jesus the only incarnation of God on earth? It's one and only embodiment? The Logos made flesh? Or is Jesus the symbol of a deeper truth? That everything and everyone, too, is the Logos made flesh? Could it be that we are all sacred? That the world is sacred? That life and consciousness is sacred? Could this be the image we were made in? Could it be that belief in Jesus as God is the first hurdle and coming to see yourself and others the same way? Could it be that this is why we're told to imitate Christ? Before we give up on logic amidst all of this paradox, let's take another look at the scripture. Genesis tells us that the Spirit of God created the cosmos and was immediately imminent within it. Remember, the Spirit of God was there on the surface of the primordial waters. We are then told that the Spirit of God was breathed into Adam in order to give him life. And next, John tells us the very same Spirit present in the beginning was breathed into Adam. The very same Spirit that gave life to the cosmos was made flesh and incarnated. And this same life was, as John said, the light of men. Not the light of Christ, not of God alone, but of all mankind. It is the shining awareness that glints in each of our eyes, our life-giving spirit. It is all life in the world, and it is Jesus himself. What could this mean? Well, it could mean what the church wants you to believe, that Jesus is God full stop. Or it could mean what the early church fathers thought it meant, what Meister Eckhart thought it meant. It could mean that my life is God's being, and therefore God's existence must be my existence. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties. But I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.